Continuing in our reading of Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When are the times and seasons that God usually delivers His people out of the bondage of affliction? First, when they are in the greatest extremity. Though Jonah was in the belly of hell, he says, Thou hast brought up my life from corruption. Jonah 2, 6 when there is but a hair's breadth between the godly and death, God ushers in deliverance. When the ship was almost covered with waves, Christ awoke and rebuked the wind. When Isaac was upon the altar and the knife about to be put to his throat, the angel comes and says, Lay not thy hand upon the child. When Peter began to sink, Christ took him by the hand when the quota of brick was doubled, then Moses, the temporal Savior, comes. When the people of God are in the greatest danger, the morning star of deliverance appears. When the patient is ready to faint, the antidote is given. Secondly, when affliction has done its work upon them, when it has affected that which God hath sent it for, as, firstly, when it has humbled them, remembering my affliction, the wormwood and the gall, my soul is humbled in me. Lamentations 3, 19 and 20. Then God's corrosive has eaten out the proud flesh. Secondly, when it has tamed their impatience before they were proud and impatient like froward children that struggle with their parents. But when their cursed hearts are tamed, they say, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Micah 7, 9. And as Eli, it is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. Let him hedge me with thorns, if he will plant me with grace. 1 Samuel 3, 18. Thirdly, when they are partakers of more holiness and are more full of heavenly mindedness. Hebrews 12, 10. When the sharp frost of affliction has brought forth the spring flowers of grace, the cross is sanctified, and God will bring them out of the house of bondage. Sorrow will turn to joy, ashes to garlands. When the metal is refined, it is taken out of the furnace. When affliction has healed us, God takes off the smarting bandage. Question, why does God bring His people out of the house of bondage? Hereby He makes way for His own glory. His glory is dearer to him than anything. Besides, it is a crown jewel. By raising his people, he raises the trophies of his own honor. He glorifies his own attributes. His power, truth, and goodness are triumphant. Firstly, his power. If God did not sometimes bring his people into trouble, how could his power be seen in bringing them out? He brought Israel out of the house of bondage with miracle upon miracle. He saved them with an outstretched arm. What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest? Psalm 114.5 Of Israel's march out of Egypt, it is said, when the sea fled and the waters were parted each from other, here was the power of God set forth. Is there anything too hard for me? Jeremiah 32.27 God loves to help when things seem past hope. He creates deliverance. Psalm 124, 8. He brought Isaac out of a dead womb and the Messiah out of a virgin's womb. Oh, how does his power shine forth? 
when he overcomes seeming impossibilities and works a cure when things look desperate. Secondly, his truth. God has made promises to his people when they are under great pressures to deliver them, and his truth is engaged in his promise. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee. Psalm 50, verse 15. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven. Job 5:19. How is the scripture bespangled with these promises as the firmament is with stars? Either God will deliver them from death, or by death He will make a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13 When promises are verified, God's truth is magnified. Thirdly, His goodness. God is full of compassion to such that are in misery. The Hebrew word for mercy signifies bowels. God has sounding of bowels, Isaiah 63:15, and this sympathy stirs up God to deliver. In his love and pity he redeemed them, Isaiah 63:9. This makes way for the triumph of his goodness. He is tender-hearted. He will not over-afflict. He cuts asunder the bars of iron. He breaks the yoke of the oppressor. Thus all his attributes ride in triumph in saving his people out of trouble. Question, how do the deliverance of the godly and wicked out of trouble differ? First, the deliverances of the godly are preservations of the wicked reservations. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly and to reserve the unjust to be punished. Second Peter 2, 9, A sinner may be delivered from dangerous sickness and out of prison, but all this is but a reservation for some greater evil. Second, God delivers the wicked, or rather spares them, in anger. Deliverances to the wicked are not given as pledges of God's love, but symptoms of displeasure, as the quail were given to Israel in anger. But deliverances of the godly are in love. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Second Samuel 22, 20. Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Isaiah 38:17. Thou hast loved me from the pit of corruption. A wicked man may say, Lord, thou hast delivered me out of the pit of corruption. But a godly man may say, Lord, thou hast loved me out of the pit of corruption. It is one thing to have God's power deliver us, and another thing to have his love deliver us. Oh, said Hezekiah, thou hast in love to my soul delivered me from the pit of corruption. Question, how may it be known that a deliverance comes in love? Firstly, when it makes our heart boil over in love to God. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice, Psalm 116, verse 1. It is one thing to love our mercies, another thing to love the Lord. Deliverance is in love when it causes love. Secondly, deliverance is in love when we have hearts to improve it for God's glory. The wicked, instead of improving their deliverance for God's glory, increase their corruption. They grow worse, as the metal, when taken out of the fire, grows harder. But our deliverance is in love when we improve it for God's glory. God raises us out of a low condition, and we lift Him up in our praises, and honor Him with our substance. Proverbs 3, 9. He recovers us from sickness, and we spend ourselves in His service. 
Mercy is not as the sun to the fire, to dull it and pull it out, but as oil to the wheel, to make it move faster. Thirdly, deliverance comes in love when it makes us more exemplary in holiness. And our lives are walking Bibles. A thousand praises and doxologies do not honor God so much as the mortifying of one lust. Upon Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and holiness, Obadiah 17. When these two go together, deliverance and holiness, when being made monuments of mercy we are patterns of piety, then a deliverance comes in love, and we may say, as Hezekiah, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Use 1. If God brings his people out of bondage, let none despond in trouble. Say not, I shall sink under this burden, or as David, I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. God can make the text good personally and nationally to bring his people out of the house of bondage. When he sees a fit season, he will put forth his arm and save them, and he can do it with ease. Lord, it is nothing with thee to help. Second Chronicles 14.11 He that can turn tides can turn the times. He that raised Lazarus when he was dead can raise thee when thou art sick. I looked and there was none to help, therefore mine own arm brought salvation. Isaiah 63.5 Do not despond, believe in God's power. Faith sets God to work to deliver us. Use two, labor if you are in trouble to be fitted for deliverance. Many would have deliverance but are not fitted for it. Question, when are we fitted for deliverance? Answer, when by our afflictions we are conformed to Christ. When we have learned obedience, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, that is, Jesus learned sweet submission to his Father's will, Hebrews 5, 8, not my will but thine be done, Luke 22, 42. When we have thus learned obedience by our sufferings, we are willing to do what God would have us do, and be what God would have us be. We are conformed to Christ and are fitted for deliverance. Use 3. If God has brought you at any time out of the house of bondage, out of great and eminent troubles, be much in praise. Deliverance calls for praise. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee. Psalm 30, 11 and 12. My glory, that is my tongue, which is the instrument of glorifying thee. The saints are temples of the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Where should God's praises be sounded but in His temple? Gratitude should follow a favor. The deepest springs yield the sweetest water, and hearts deeply sensible of God's deliverances yield the sweetest praises. Moses tells Pharaoh when he's going out of Egypt, We will go with our flocks and our herds, Exodus 10, 9. Why so? Because he might have sacrifices of thanksgiving ready to offer to God for their deliverance. To have a thankful heart for deliverance is a greater blessing than the deliverance itself. One of the lepers, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God, Luke 17:15. The leper's thankful heart was a greater blessing than to be healed of his leprosy. Have any of you been brought out of the house of bondage, out of prison, sickness, or any death-threatening danger? Do not forget to be thankful. 
be not graves, but temples, that you may be the more thankful, observe every emphasis and circumstance in your deliverance, such as to be brought out of trouble when you were at the brink of death, when there was but a hair's breadth between you and death, or to be brought out of affliction without sin. You did not purchase your deliverance by the ensnaring of your consciences, or to be brought out of trouble upon the wings of prayer, or that those who were the occasions of bringing you into trouble should be the instruments of bringing you out. These circumstances being well weighed, heighten a deliverance and should heighten our thankfulness. The cutting of a stone may be of more value than the stone itself, and the circumstancing of a deliverance may be greater than the deliverance itself. Question, but how shall we praise God in a right manner for deliverance? First, be holy persons. In the sacrifice of thanksgiving, whosoever did eat thereof with his uncleanness upon him was to be cut off, Leviticus 7.20, to typify how unpleasing their praises and thank offerings are who live in sin. Secondly, praise God with humble hearts. Acknowledge how unworthy you were of deliverance. God's mercies are not debts, but legacies, and that you should have them by legacy should make you humble. The elders fell upon their faces an expression of humility and worshipped God in Revelation 11:16. Thirdly, praise God for deliverances cordially. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. Psalm 111.1 In religion there is no music but in concert when heart and tongue join together. Fourthly, praise God for deliverances constantly. While I live will I praise the Lord. Psalm 146.2 Some will be thankful while the memory of a deliverance is fresh and then leave off. The Carthaginians used at first to send the tenth of their yearly revenue to Hercules, but by degrees they grew weary and weary and left off sending. But we must be constant in our sacrifice or thank offering. The motion of our praise must be like the motion of our pulse, which beats as long as life lasts. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Psalm 146, 2. Secondly, these words are to be understood mystically and spiritually. By Israel's deliverance from the house of bondage is typified their spiritual deliverance from sin, Satan, and hell. Firstly, from sin, the house of bondage was a type of Israel's deliverance from sin. Sin is true bondage. It enslaves the soul of all conditions. Servitude is the worst. I was held before conversion, says Augustine, not with an iron chain, but with the obstinacy of mine own will. Sin is the enslaver. It is called a law, because sin has a binding power over a man. Romans 7:23. It is said to reign, because it exercises a tyrannical power. Romans 6:12. And men are said to be the servants of sin, because they are so enslaved by it. Romans 6:17 Thus sin is the house of bondage Israel was not so enslaved in the iron furnace as the sinner is by sin they are worse slaves and vassals who are under the power of sin than they are who are under the power of earthly tyrants 
Other slaves have tyrants ruling over their bodies only, but the sinner has his soul tyrannized over, that princely thing, the soul which sways the scepter of reason, and was once crowned with perfect knowledge and holiness, now goes on foot. It is enslaved and made a lackey to every base lust. Other slaves have some pity shown on them. The tyrant gives them food and lets them have hours for their rest. But sin is a merciless tyrant. It will let men have no rest. Judas Iscariot had no rest until he had betrayed Christ, and after that he had less rest than before. How does a man wear himself out in the service of sin, wasting his body, breaking his sleep, distracting his mind? A wicked man is every day doing sin's drudgery work. Other slaves have servile work, but it is lawful. It's lawful to work in the galley and tug at the oar, but all the laws and commands of sin are unlawful. Sin says to one man, defraud. To another, be unchaste. To another, take revenge. To another, take a false oath. Thus, all sin's commands are unlawful. We cannot obey sin's law but by breaking God's law. Other slaves are forced against their will. Israel groaned under slavery, Exodus 2.23, but sinners are content to be under the command of sin. They are willing to be slaves. They love their chains. They will not take their freedom. They glory in their shame, Philippians 3.19. They wear their sins not as their fetters, but as their ornaments. They rejoice in iniquity, Jeremiah 11.15. Other slaves are brought to correction, but sin's slaves are without repentance and are brought to condemnation. Other slaves lie in the iron furnace. Sin's slaves lie in the fiery furnace. What freedom of will has a sinner to his own confusion when he can do nothing but what sin will have him? He is enslaved. Thus, sinners are in the house of bondage. But God takes His own, His elect, out of the house of bondage. He beats off the chains and fetters of sin. He rescues them from their slavery. He makes them free by bringing them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans 8.21 The law of love now rules, not the law of sin. Though the life of sin be prolonged, yet not the dominion. As those beasts in Daniel had their lives prolonged for a season, but their dominion was taken away. Daniel 7:12. The saints are made spiritual kings to rule and conquer their corruptions, to bind these kings in chains. It is a matter of the highest praise and thanksgiving to be taken out of the house of bondage, to be freed from enslaving lusts, and be made kings to reign in glory forever. Secondly, the bringing of Israel out of the house of bondage was a type of the deliverance from Satan. Men naturally are in the house of bondage. They are enslaved to Satan. Satan is called the prince of this world, John 14.30, and the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, because Satan has the power to command and enslave them. 
Though he shall one day be a close prisoner in chains, yet now the devil insults and tyrannizes over the souls of men. Sinners are under his rule. He exercises over them a jurisdiction such as Caesar did over the Senate. The devil fills men's heads with error and their hearts with malice. Why hath Satan filled thine heart? Acts 5.3 A sinner's heart is the devil's mansion house. Matthew 12.44 I will return into mine house. And sure that must needs be a house of bondage, which is the devil's mansion house. Satan is a complete tyrant. He rules men's minds. He blinds them with ignorance. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He rules their memories. Sinners remember that which is evil and forget that which is good. Their memories are like a strainer that lets go all the pure and retains only the dregs. He rules their wills. Though he cannot force the will, the devil draws at the lusts of your father you will do. John 8.44 He has got your hearts, and him you will obey. His strong temptations draw men to evil more than all the promises of God can draw them to good. This is the state of every man by nature. He is in the house of bondage. The devil has him in his power. A sinner grinds in the devil's mill. He is at the command of Satan, as the ass is at the command of the driver. No wonder to see men oppress and persecute. As slaves, they must do what the God of this world will have them. How could those swine but run when the devil entered into the Matthew 8.32? When the devil tempted Ananias to tell a lie... He could not but speak what Satan had put in his heart, Acts 5.3. When the devil entered into Judas Iscariot and bade him betray Christ, he would do it, though he hanged himself. It is a sad and dismal case to be in the house of bondage under the power and tyranny of Satan. When David would curse the enemies of God, how did he pray against them? that Satan might be at their right hand. Psalm 109.6 He knew he could then lead them into any snare. If the sinner has Satan at his right hand, let him take heed that he be not at God's left hand. Is it not a case to be bewailed, to see men taken captive of Satan at his will? 2 Timothy 2.26 The devil leads sinners as slaves before him in triumph. He wholly possesses them. If people should see their beasts bewitched and possessed by the devil, they would be much troubled. And yet, though their souls are possessed by Satan, they are not sensible of it. What can be worse than for men to be in the house of bondage and to have the devil hurry them on in their lusts to perdition? Sinners are willingly enslaved to Satan. They love their jailer are content to sit quietly under Satan's jurisdiction. They choose this bramble to rule over them, though after a while fire will come out of the bramble to devour them. Judges 9.15 What an infinite mercy it is when God brings poor souls out of this house of bondage, when he gives them a jail deliverance from the prince of darkness. Jesus Christ redeems captives. He ransoms sinners by price and rescues them by force. 
As David took a lamb out of the lion's mouth, 1 Samuel 17.35, so Christ rescues souls out of the mouth of a roaring lion. Oh, what a mercy is it to be brought out of that house of bondage from captives to the prince of the power of the air, to be made subjects of the prince of peace. This is done by the preaching of the word, to turn them from the power of Satan unto God, Acts 26.18. Thirdly, the bringing of Israel out of the house of bondage was a type of their being delivered from hell. Hell is a house of bondage, a house built on purpose for sinners to lie in. There is such a house of bondage where the damned lie. The wicked shall be turned into hell, Psalm 9.17. How can ye escape the damnation of hell, Matthew 23.33. If anyone should ask where this house of bondage is, where is the place of hell? I wish he may never know experimentally. Let us not so much, says Chrysostom, labor to know where hell is as how to escape it. Yet to satisfy curiosity, it may be observed in Scripture that hell is some place beneath. Hell beneath, Proverbs 15.24. Hesiod says hell is as far under the earth as heaven is above it. The devils besought Christ that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Luke 8.31. Hell is in the deep. Why must there be this house of bondage? Why a hell? because there must be a place for the execution of divine justice. Earthly monarchs have their prison for malefactors, and shall not God have his? Sinners are criminals. They have offended God, and it would not be consistent with his holiness and justice to have his laws infringed and not inflict penalties. The dreadfulness of the place... Could you but hear the groans and shrieks of the damned for one hour, it would confirm you in this truth that hell is a house of bondage. Hell is the emphasis of misery. Besides the punishment of loss, which is the exclusion of the soul from the glorified sight of God, which divines think the worst part of hell, there will be the punishment of sense. If when God's wrath is kindled but a little, and a spark of it flies into a man's conscience in this life, it is so terrible, what will hell itself be? In hell there will be a plurality of torments, bonds and chains, 2 Peter 2, 4. There will be the worm, Mark 9, 48. This is the worm of conscience. There will be the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 15. Other fire is but fake fire to this. The house of hell is haunted with devils, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Anselm says, I had rather endure all torments than see the devil with bodily eyes. Such as go to hell must not only be forced to, to behold the devil, but must be shut up with this lion in his den. They must keep the devil company. He is full of spite against mankind, a red dragon that will spit fire in men's faces. The torments of hell abide forever. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Revelation 14.11 Time cannot finish it. Tears cannot quench it. Mark 9.44 The wicked are salamanders who live always in the fire of hell and are not consumed. 
After they have lain millions of years in hell, their punishment is as far from ending as it was at the beginning. If all the earth and sea were sand, and every thousand years a bird should fly and take away one grain, it would be a long time before that vast heap would be removed. Yet, if after all that time the damned might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But this word ever breaks the heart. Question. How does it seem to square with God's justice to punish a sin committed in a moment with eternal torment? Because there is an eternity of sin in man's nature, because sin is committed against an infinite majesty, and therefore the sin itself is infinite, and proportionally the punishment must be infinite. Because a finite creature cannot bear infinite wrath, he must be eternally satisfying what he can never satisfy. If hell be such a house of bondage, what infinite cause have they to bless God who are delivered from it? One step farther would we go. There may be strong light and conviction of sin in the conscience. Hebrews 6, 4, deep distress of soul in the near prospect of death and eternity. Acts twenty four twenty five. This succeeded by solemn vows, purposes, and resolutions. Exodus nine twenty seven and 28. And this by a species of joy. Matthew thirteen twenty, Connected with an external mortification of sin. Acts eight twelve and 13. As in the case of Simon the sorcerer, who believed and was baptized. And yet, the mighty and spiritual process of regeneration may not even have commenced in the soul. Far be it from us to say that the Spirit of God may not employ these as a means of conversion. He may, he often does, yet they may exist alone and apart from any connection with a work of grace. We are aware that in showing what regeneration is not, we have assumed high and solemn ground, and have advanced statements which, if supported by the Scriptures of Truth, and we have endeavored to fortify every position by the Word of God, will break up the lying refuges, undermine the spurious hopes, explode the false evidences, and rip apart the specious covering of many now dwelling in the outer courts of Christianity and making a fair show of religion in the flesh. Galatians 6.12 But the vast importance of the subject and its vital relation to the eternal happiness of the soul demanded from us a close investigation of the false evidences of this great work. We now proceed to view positively the nature of regeneration. Need we enlarge upon the moral state of the soul which is the reverse of true regeneration? It may be helpful to glance briefly at it. It is described in God's word in dark colors and by gloomy images. The heart is spoken of as depraved, the understanding as darkened the will as perverted, the affections as estranged. Look at the description of the heart in its natural state in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Matthew 15.19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Awful picture of the natural heart. The picture of all yet in an unrenewed state. There may not be the overt act of sin 
sin, the actual commission, the outbreaking of the evil, but the evil is there, deeply embedded and hidden there, and only restrained by the power of God. Read again Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. Can language present the natural state of the heart in more affecting and awful terms? Here it is represented as fully set to do evil, full of evil and madness, deceitful and desperately wicked. Here it is represented as fully set to do evil, full of evil and madness, desperately wicked. The surface may be fair to the eye. There may be kindness, affection, benevolence dwelling there, but beneath that surface is deep, deep ungodliness. Deep, deep ungodliness. No love to God there. No affection for Jesus there. No thirst for holiness there. No crucifixion of sin and self there. And until the Holy Ghost enters and creates all things new, all things will remain as they were, under the unbroken dominion and tyranny of sin. The understanding is dark. Ephesians 4.18 Having the understanding darkened. Hence there can be no true knowledge of God and of Christ, no proper acquaintance with His Word, His law, His commands, no just realization of eternity, no proper estimate of time. All is spiritual darkness to the soul. The will is perverted. It is in opposition to God and holiness. It has no bias towards spiritual and heavenly things. Its natural bent and disposition is to evil, evil only and and evil continually, Genesis chapter 6. But there is more. There is positive enmity in the natural man to God. Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. This is a strong expression. The apostle states that the carnal mind is not only alienated from God, averse to Him, but is actual enmity. Had he represented the carnal mind as an enemy to God, that would have sounded startling. But when he describes it as enmity itself, we have the most vivid and awful idea of man's state by nature. An enemy may be reconciled, but enmity cannot. The ground of this enmity, the apostle states, to be the law of God. It is not subject to the law of God. The enmity of the carnal heart is against God as the moral governor of the universe. Let not the reader, especially if there be the honest conviction in his conscience of the existence of the carnal mind, overlook this important fact. There is danger of turning aside from the true cause of man's enmity to God. We repeat then. All are enemies to God who do not submit to His kingly authority. Men may imagine they admire and love God under other characters, but hate Him as a lawgiver. But this cannot be. If God be not loved, adored, and obeyed as a lawgiver, He cannot, without denying Himself and throwing contempt upon His own law, recognize the supposed love and adoration of any of His creatures. Supreme dominion is essential to the character of God, and to be properly and truly loved, he must be loved as a king. 
Among men, the person and the office may be separable. A man may be the personal friend of the king, and yet an enemy to his government. As a man, he may be loved. As a magistrate, he may be hated. We can imagine what many who lived in the days of the commonwealth were sincerely attached to the person of Oliver Cromwell, but disapproved of his government, and condemned as unjustifiable his usurpation of authority and power, but not so in reference to God, the moral governor of the world. His nature and his office, his attributes and his government are inseparable, and no one can possibly be a friend to God who hates his government and refuses obedience to his law. Now, the carnal mind is enmity against God because of his moral government. The question is, who shall reign, God or the sinner? This is the only ground of controversy. Decide this question in favor of the sinner, and so far as it relates to him, the controversy ceases. Only let God drop the reins of his government, let him descend from his throne, lay aside his scepter, give up his law, and the enmity of the carnal mind ceases. Man would revel in his goodness, admire his wisdom, and adore God's power. But God can as soon cease to be as to give up his right to dominion. He must assert his claim to the throne. He is bound to maintain the dignity, shield the purity, and support the honor of his law. And sooner can heaven and earth pass away than one jot or one tittle of that law fail. This the carnal mind cannot bear, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can the enmity against God, O awful thought, enmity to the best of beings, the dearest of friends, enmity to him whose nature and whose name is love, who is holy, yes, holiness itself, good, yes, goodness itself, true, yes, truth itself, enmity to him, apart from whom nothing is good, nothing holy, nothing true, who is the fountain from whence all the streams flow, the sun from which all the rays emanate, enmity to him who gave his son to die for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, yes, to die for his enemies. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Romans 5.10, enmity to Jesus who thus died, who flew on wings of love to the rescue and the redemption of fallen man, who took the place, bore the sins, endured the curse, all this for rebel man, who gave his life, his obedience, all he could give, himself, all this for the poor, the vile, the worthless, Jesus suffered, bled, and died, was not this enough? Could he have done more? The law said, It is enough. Justice said, I am satisfied. All this, and who can estimate it? All this for sinners, for rebels, for enemies. Son of God, is it for this they hate thee, despise thee, reject thee? Oh, the enmity of the carnal mind. If possible, the Word of God gives a yet more awful description of the unrenewed state of man. It is represented under the image of death. The natural condition of the soul is moral death. Thus it is described in Ephesians 2, one dead in trespasses and sins. And verse 5, when we were dead in sins. Colossians 2, 13, you being dead in your sins. Romans 5, 15, through the offense of one, many are dead. 
This is his awful state, spiritually, legally, and if the quickening power of the eternal Spirit of God does not interpose, judicially dead. Insensibility to all spiritual things marks the unrenewed mind. To things that are carnal, it is all feeling, all sensitiveness, all life. Here all its natural faculties are in full vigor and play. The understanding, the will, the affections find ample range for their carnal propensities, powerful incentives to their indulgence, and revel and exult and expatiate amid the world of sensual delight. Limited it is confessed that opens to their view. Oh yes, all is life here. The mind can think, reason compare and arrange, the will can select, and the affections pour forth their tender yearnings, and still the pall of spiritual death covers the soul. What are the symptoms? Is insensibility a mark of death? Then it is here. No spiritual sensation, no feeling, no emotion, all is stagnant, quiet and motionless as the river of death. True, the natural conscience may for a moment be aroused, and the agitated and alarmed soul may exhibit some signs of feeling, and so will a corpse under the influence of electric shock. The eye may roll, and the lip may move, and every feature in the countenance assume the expression of life, but it is a corpse still. We speak to the soul dead in trespasses and sins. We employ the language of terror. We preach the law. We unfold its authority, its purity, its demands. We announce the curse of the law, its threatening, its fearful doom. We speak of a holy God, a sin-seeing, sin-hating, sin-avenging God. We uncover hell and reveal its darkness, its quenchless flame, its undying worm, the smoke of its eternal torments. We look, but not a bosom heaves, not an eye weeps, not a lip quivers, not a feature wears the aspect of terror. All, all is still cold and motionless death is there we change our theme we speak in the language of persuasive tenderness we preach the gospel we proclaim its divinity its design its fullness its freeness the mercy it promises the blessings it breathes the glory it unfolds we lift up jesus as loving sinners dying for sinners receiving sinners saving sinners we unveil heaven and bring to view its light, its holiness, its cloudless day, its eternal sunshine, heaven's deep songs of joy, heaven's never-dying, ever-growing bliss. We look, but not a heart throbs, not an eye glistens, not a lip praises, not a countenance beams with delight. All, all is quiet, cold, and silent for death is there awful picture of the unrenewed man does the absence of breath the vital principle of life denote a state of death then it is here prayer is the vital energy of a quickened soul the spiritual breath of one born from above it is the first symptom of sensibility the first and strongest evidence that the spirit that quickens has entered the soul breathing over the whole man the breath of life 
The pulse may at first beat but faintly, even as the first gentle heaving of an infant's bosom. Still, it is not less the product of the Spirit, the breath of God. Behold, he prayeth, is the announcement that sends gladness through the church of Christ on earth, and kindles joy among the angels of God in heaven. Behold, he prayeth. God the Father hastens to welcome the returning and resuscitated soul and exclaims, This, my son, was dead and is alive again. Luke 15:24. It will follow then that the absence of prayer marks the soul yet dead in sins. What evidence can be more convincing? It is a symptom that cannot mislead. The praying soul is a quickened soul. The prayerless soul is a lifeless soul. The individual that has never truly prayed has never known what one throb of spiritual life is. He may content himself with the external form. He may kneel in the outer court of the tabernacle and, as Robert Layton expresses it, breathe his tune and air of words and yet continue an utter stranger to true prayer. Are you such a one? Let the voice of tender affection now lead you to a serious consideration of your real state. Do not mistake the outward form for the inward spirit of prayer. The soul may be dead with all the appearance of life, but where there is true prayer, there is real life. For prayer is the ascending of the divine life to God from whom it came. It came from God and returns to Him again. As the river flows toward the ocean, or as the infant turns to its mother, the author of its existence and the source of its nourishment, as the well of water in a renewed soul springing up rises heavenwards, so a soul born of God turns to God, its author, its sustainer, its keeper. But it is proper that we detain you, the reader, no longer from a consideration of the real nature of the spiritual change. It is the reverse of what we have with some minuteness and at some length been describing. The word of God shall be the speaker here. It is a passing from death unto life. John 5:24. Verily, verily, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Colossians 2.13, And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed from death unto life. It is a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. It is a divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 Partakers of the divine nature. Hebrews 12.10 Partakers of His holiness. A new birth. John 3.3 3, Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. John 1.13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
a turning of darkness to light. 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A change from enmity to love. Colossians 1, 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. 1 John 4.19, We love him because he first loved us. Romans 5.5, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. A restoration of the divine image. Colossians 3.10, And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. 1 John 2.29, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. Thus clearly and emphatically does the word of God speak when unfolding the nature of true regeneration. Reserving for the next chapter the consideration of the author and the evidences of this work, we close the present one by holding up more distinctly and prominently to view a few of the broad lineaments of the new creature. The Holy Ghost testifies that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. This testimony is true. For first, he loves and worships a new God. The natural man is a god to himself, and he has many other gods as well, whether it be self-righteousness, self-gratification, the world, wealth, family. In whatever form it appears, other lords have dominion over him, to the exclusion of the one true and living God. The nature of the human mind is such that it must love and worship some object supremely. In his state of innocence, Jehovah was the one supreme object of the creature's love and adoration, Seduced from that state of simple and supreme affection by the tempter's promise that if they ate of the fruit of the tree forbidden of God, they should be as gods, in one moment they threw off their allegiance to Jehovah, renounced him as the object of their supreme love, the center of their holiest affection, and Adam and Eve became gods to themselves. The temple was ruined, the altar thrown down, the pure flame was extinguished, God departed, and other lords entered and took possession of the soul. But what a change does grace produce? It repairs the temple, rebuilds the altar, rekindles the flame, and brings God back to man. God in Christ is now the supreme object of his love, his adoration, and his worship. The idol self has been cast down, self-righteousness renounced, self-exaltation crucified. The strong man armed has entered, cast out the usurper, and creating all things new, has resumed his rightful supremacy. The affections released from their false deity and renewed by the Spirit now turn to and take up their rest in God. God in Christ, how glorious does he now appear. Truly it is a new God the soul is brought to know and love. Never did it see in him such beauty, such excellence, such blessedness as it now sees. All other glory fades and dies before the surpassing glory of his character, his attributes, God's government, and his law. God in Christ is viewed as reconciled now. Enmity ceases, hatred has passed away, opposition grounds its weapons, hard thoughts of his law and rebellious thoughts of his government subside, love kindles in the soul, and in one precious Christ, the one mediator, God and the sinner meet, embrace, 
and blend. Truly they become one. God says, Thou art mine. The soul responds, Thou art my God. Other lords have had dominion over me, but henceforth Thee only will I serve, Thee only will I love. My soul followeth hard after Thee, Thy right hand upholdeth me. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. God in Christ is His Father now. I will arise and go unto my Father, is the first motion of a renewed soul. Father, I have sinned against Thee, is the first confession rising from the broken heart. The father hastens to meet and embrace his child, and clasping him to his bosom exclaims, This my son was dead and is alive again. Reconciled, he now looks up to him truly as his father. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Thou shalt call me my father, and shalt not turn away from me. Jeremiah 3.19 Does God speak? It is the voice of a father he hears. Does God chasten and rebuke? It is from his father he feels. Are his hopes disappointed, his plans crossed, his cisterns broken, his gourds withered? My father has done it all, he exclaims. Blessed spirit of adoption, sweet pledge and evidence art thou, O Lord, of the new creature. God in Christ is now the object of confidence and trust. Trust in a reconciled God and Father was no mark and portion of his unrenewed state. It was then trust in self, in its imagined wisdom, strength, and goodness. It was then trust in the arm of flesh, in second causes. Now the soul trusts in God, trusts in Him at all times and under all circumstances, trusts Him in the darkest hour, under the gloomiest dispensation, trusts Him when His providences look dark and lowering, and God seems to hide Himself. It even trusts him, though he slay me. Now, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, the labor of the olive fail, and the field yields no meat, though the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, he will rejoice in the Lord, and joy in the God of his salvation. Oh, how safe he feels in God's hands, and under his government now, his his soul, his body, his family, his business, and his cares are completely surrendered, and God is all in all. Reader, this is to be born again. Second, the unregenerate, excuse me, second, the regenerate soul possesses and acknowledges a new Savior. How glorious, suitable, and precious is Jesus to him now. Not so formerly, then he had his saviors, his refuges of lies, his many fatal confidences. Jesus was to him as a root out of a dry ground, having no form nor comeliness. It may be that he denied his deity, rejected Christ's atonement, scorned his grace, and slighted his pardon and his love. Christ is all to him now. He adores him as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, as over all God blessed forever. As God manifest in the flesh, as stooping to the nature of man, becoming bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, 
as offering himself up as the propitiation for our sins, as dying the just for the unjust. His righteousness is glorious as justifying from all things. His blood is precious as cleansing from all sin. His fullness of grace is valued as supplying all need. Oh, how surpassingly glorious, inimitably lovely, and unutterably precious is Jesus to the renewed soul. Truly a new Savior. Other lords he has renounced, refuges of lies he has turned his back upon, false Christs he no longer follows. He has found another and a better Savior, Jesus, the mighty God, the Redeemer of sinners, the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. All is new to his recovered sight. A new world of glory has floated before his mind. Jesus, the Lamb, is the light and glory thereof. Never did he suppose there was such beauty in his person, such love in his heart, such perfection in Jesus' work, such power and such willingness to save. That blood which was trampled underfoot is now precious. That righteousness which was scorned is now glorious. That name which was reviled is now as music to his soul, even a name that is above every name. Jesus is the only Savior. Not an allowed confidence has he outside of Christ. The covenant of dead works he has renounced. The Spirit having brought him out of and away from it, has led him into the covenant of grace, the substance and stability and glory of which is Jesus. On the broad basis of Emmanuel's finished atoning work, he rests his whole soul. And the more he presses the foundation, the more he leans upon the cornerstone, the stronger and the more able to sustain him does he find it. True, he feels a self-righteousness and a principle such as that closely adhering to him all his journey through the wilderness. When he prays, self-righteousness is there. When he speaks, it is there. When he labors, self-righteousness is there. When he reflects, it is there. He detects it when suspicion of its existence would be most at rest. But in the sober moments of his judgment, when prostrate beneath the cross and looking up to God through Jesus... This principle is searched out, abhorred, confessed, and mourned over, and with the eye of faith upon a suffering Savior, the language of his expanding heart is with the hymn writer, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.